what? No small talk? No chit-chat? That's the trouble with the world today. No one takes the time to do a really sinister interrogation anymore. It's a lost art. Your sense of humor does slay me, Commander. I'm sorry. Hello and welcome to The Long and Short of It, the podcast where we discuss each of the games on Metacritic's top 100 list. My name's Dan and I'm joined by... I'm Lawrence, welcome to the podcast. So, how are you finding life in lockdown? It's very boring. I've, yeah. I've now been on my own for 21 days because I live on my own. So, uh, I'm going a bit mad, but I've got stuff to be getting on with, so it isn't too bad. But yeah, it's a bit weird. What about you? Yeah, it's all right. Um, I'm still working from home, so I'm doing that in the week. And I'm trying to get as much done on YouTube and the podcast in my spare time. Yeah. Um, the way I see it is, it is what it is, and we've just got to make the best of it. Yeah, that's it. And to be fair, I mean, in terms of what we're doing, it's for me particularly because I'm I'm not working. I'm furloughed. Um, it gives me time to play through the games that we're reviewing, well, discussing. So it's given me a bit of extra time for that, which is good. But yeah, I reckon we're going to be like this for another month at least. Yeah, I think a month at least is what I, th- I think. Maybe maybe two months even. Who knows? We're just going <laughs> to clear up. Yeah. Um, I know that holidaymakers have started to charge an extortionate amount for holidays in October. Oh, have That's they? That's what I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think... So these are the things we can expect. Yeah, when when this is all over, people are going to want to get away for a while, aren't they, I think? Yeah, I'm going to save a lot of holiday for then. Yeah, same. It's, uh, it's a weird one, but it'll pass. Just got to stay home and wash your hands. Yeah, uh, so I know you've just got Final Fantasy VII, so do you want to give us a bit of a very brief rundown on how you're finding that? Yeah, um... So following on from last week, obviously we covered Final Fantasy IX. We discussed Seven a fair bit in that. Um, and in a couple of episodes, I've said that it's my favourite game ever. So it arrived for me on day of recording yesterday, so the 11th of April, day after release. And I spent eight and a half hours yesterday playing it. So I'm feeling quite groggy today because I'm not <laughs> used to doing a full day of gaming anymore it's uh it's taken it out of me i said to dan earlier the last time i did it was when red dead redemption 2 was released but it's good i'm enjoying it it's very different from the original which we knew it would be and i was saying to a couple of my mates who are really into final fantasy 7 as well i'm not expecting it to take over as my favorite i don't think it's going to beat the original for me in terms of how much i enjoy uh, enjoy it or nostalgia but it's very enjoyable i'm liking it i'm obviously because i spent eight hours playing it yesterday and i'm only you know if you compare it to the original game i'm about five hours into that in comparison so in fact no not even five hours into that in comparison about two hours into the original game as i am now with the remake so there's a lot to do it's good um i'm enjoying playing it but we've got quite a lot of big games coming up on the podcast soon so i'm gonna have to uh, manage my time well I don't think I'm going to complete it for a while. But it's good, yeah. I'm liking it. Well, you may as well just um, stagger it out and enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm I'm not in a rush to finish it. And like we've just said, we've got nothing but time on our hands at the moment anyway. Um, so I, th- I think moving forward, it will take me a while to complete it, especially with the next two games that we've got on the list anyway after this one. 
So, uh, yeah. Speaking of which, uh, today's game is the massive at the time, GoldenEye 007 for the Nintendo 64. Now, this is number 27 on Metacritic's top 100 list. It has an aggregate score of 96. And one thing I also noted is that only 21 reviews are listed on Metacritic to make up that score. Which just goes to reinforce that idea that back then, not that many reviews were being done. And obviously it means that the scores maybe were pushed up or pushed down. As a result, you don't get as balanced an average, maybe? Yeah, perhaps. I I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot. And what we discussed on the last episode with Final Fantasy IX, we said that reviews online reviews when metacritic aggregate scores were coming together they were they were a new medium really weren't they online reviews which is why i think that a majority of the games that are on this list are games from you know the playstation nintendo 64 era to you know ps2 xbox gamecube and then a few for the last console generation with the 360 and the PS3 and the Nintendo Wii, etc. Um, and I mentioned it in a podcast a while ago with um, an audiobook that I've been listening to called Hey Listen, which is uh, obviously a reference to uh, Navi from Ocarina of Time. And in that book, that there's something that the um, the author says where every person that discusses video games feels that the time that they were growing up was the golden age of gaming. So for us, it would be the PlayStation N64 era moving to the PS2, whereas people that are a bit older than us would probably say the NES or the Super NES um, and the Sega Mega Drive, etc. And then further back, you know, you've got the um, the Amiga, the ColecoVision and the um, Atari 2600. So I think it's interesting seeing all of the games that are on this list are from our particular era of gaming. You don't really have anything pre-PlayStation, um, Nintendo no, 64 you don't. era, you know what I mean? And even yeah. though that's our era of gaming and it is the golden age for us, for other people it wouldn't be. And I'd be very interested to see what people in their late 30s or 40s would say about this list to compare it to yeah. games that they grew up playing. You know what I mean? I think there are some um, really glaring omissions from the Super Nintendo era. Uh, I know that, for example, Zelda Link to the Past, Zelda Link's Awakening on the Game Boy, um, Super Metroid. These are games that some people consider to be the absolute best. Well, they're they're nowhere to be found on this list. Yeah. Um, So it is something to note. It's another deficiency of this list which does have its deficiencies. So, in terms of GoldenEye, what's your history with the game? So, I've I've mentioned a few times in the past that I didn't really have a Nintendo growing up. I think I got one in my late teens maybe. Um, but one of my one of my best mates from primary school and early high school had an N64. So, I used to play um, GoldenEye, I used to play the original Super Smash. Uh, Mario Kart stuff like that but I've got quite a lot of fond memories of playing GoldenEye I think for a lot of people who have experienced playing GoldenEye on the N64 it holds quite a lot of nostalgia for them 
And yeah, when we agreed that we would be doing Goldeneye for this episode, I was quite excited to go back to it because, in my opinion, it's one of the best games of that generation. And obviously, it's classic Rareware, um, you know, history, Goldeneye. But growing up, I remember playing that game a lot, especially with my um, with my stepbrother. Because he had Nintendo yeah. 64, and I played it a lot back then. But it's it's a special game, um, for sure, and I'm a big fan of it. What about you? Yeah, I mean, we were both very excited to do this episode. I think we've spoken over the week about this game more than we have about any other game, just about. Um, so, we got a Nintendo 64, and I remember we were getting it for Christmas... And we got the Nintendo 64 with three games. We got Goldeneye, we got Super Mario 64. Never played it. And we got Diddy Kong Racing. Never played it. Uh, those were the three games. They were great selection of games. Um, I remember booting up Goldeneye and I remember seeing that it looked like all the levels were unlocked. So I was a bit curious about this. So uh, many years later, my parents told me that they were intending to buy us a new Nintendo 64 and new games. Ah. But apparently someone in my dad's work was selling a Nintendo 64 with these games. And They'd they kind it. of roped him into buying it. Uh, right, so he I felt see. like he couldn't say no. So um, we had completed save files for Mario 64, Diddy Kong and GoldenEye. So this person was obviously an avid game of it, sold nice. his Nintendo 64. Yeah, so that's my, my first uh, experience playing GoldenEye. And again, me and my brother played this for a long time. We were just working our way through the levels. It's amazing how quickly you can get through these things nowadays compared to back then. But then we've got so many resources at our fingertips to help us get through them. I mean, I was using various things to uh, make it a quicker playthrough this time for me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, as well as that, with the quicker playthroughs um, that we were able to do this time, I think because we've both played this game a lot back in the day, we know the layout of these missions, we know what to do, we know where to go. Um, And with GoldenEye itself, there's a lot of information that is kind kind of in gaming lore now if you know what i mean like everyone has a story with gold knight it was one of those games that you know on the playground people say oh did you know that if you can do this then this gets unlocked or you can get the golden gun if you do this it was one of those things that everyone had a story with gold knight at the time if they were gamers do you know what i mean gaming legend yeah yeah it's it's the equivalent of um the the pokemon games on the original game boy people saying oh there were numerous ways to unlock um and make mew catchable if you go go and do these steps you can do this it was the same with goldeneye there were there were a lot of rumors at the time that you could unlock the golden gun by doing x y and z and i I look back fondly on those times because you know playground rumors and stuff with video games were something that i look back and think wow life was a lot simpler back then you know what i mean I remember there was a rumor that you could um, you could take off Odd Jobs hat and throw it. I'm pretty sure that's not actually the case, but uh, in Nightfire, which is a later James Bond yeah. game, they did have the option to take Odd Jobs hat off and throw it, which is quite a cool feature. Well, this is this is quite a special one for you, isn't it? Because I I've got a lot of nostalgia for this game anyway, but 
the one thing that the listeners won't know about you, but I know because I lived with you for two years, is that you're a huge James Bond fan. Yeah, massive James Bond fan. Uh, so I was really excited to pick this one up again. Um, so let's let's go over a bit about the development of this game. Um, and we'll touch on kind of our fandom a bit more later. Sure. Uh, so this is what I heard was the story from... I think it's Martin Hollis, who is the creator of this game, the main um, director, I suppose, of the game. Right. So he said that somehow Nintendo had come upon the James Bond franchise and they had brought the rights to it. Now, as we know at the time, this was before GoldenEye came out, so the James Bond film series was going through a bit of a down period. Um the development for GoldenEye was taking a very long time. Originally, Timothy Dalton was signed on to do that, but with the amount of time that it was taking, he pulled out. Then they had to find a new Bond. Then they were able to get Pierce Brosnan. So it's not unreasonable to imagine that Nintendo got this pretty cheap. Um, so Nintendo wasn't sure what to do with it. So they asked Rare if they had any desire to work on a James Bond game. And originally given that this was, like I said, put into development before the GoldenEye film was released, um, it was originally going to be a Super Nintendo side-scroller. And very quickly that became a uh, on-rail shooter, something like Virtua Cop. And then eventually they, they took off the on-rail stuff and they allowed you to roam the levels freely. I just think it's such a, a strange thing that the amount of chance and luck that was involved in GoldenEye coming to fruition and just to compound that 11 people worked on this game 11 people many of whom had no experience at creating games that's just astounding to me yeah I mean we we discussed um the development a little bit over the week didn't we and yeah um we were discussing kind of time frame, like you said, the development of this game started before the film even released in 1995. And I know from doing a bit of reading that Rare had their funding pulled once or twice because they were taking so bloody long to release this and get it finished. And eventually it came out in 1997, which was just a month before Pierce Brosnan's second Bond film, Tomorrow Never Dies. So exactly, I don't know how much trouble this game was when it was being developed, whether you'd say it was in development hell, but it certainly took a very long time to release it. You know, a, a video game now coming out that's tied in with a movie two years after the movie releases, you'd expect it to be a flop, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's, it's such... Yeah, I mean, again, that just makes it even more mythical in its own way. So Martin Hollis, again, the creator, said that they definitely had their ups and downs, but from his perspective, he was never aware of any deadlines, which is why they were able to carry on so long. He huh. said he thinks that Nintendo didn't have much faith in it, and nor did Rare, so they just let them carry on and just see what they could come up with. And then it started to come together um, in the way that it did. And the, the uh, multiplayer component, which everyone so fondly remembers, apparently that was six weeks before it was due to, yeah, I don't know if late, it was release it? or go gold. Um, yeah, six weeks, then they implemented it and it became, I mean, without that multiplayer feature, I don't think it would have been what it was. It was, yeah, it was a very big, um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? It, it was a very big multiplayer incentive for people because up until then, multiplayer games had pri- primarily been on uh, PC, hadn't they? You've got games like Unreal Tournament, Quake. Um, was Doom multiplayer? I don't think it was, was it? No. But, y- no, it was you know, no. you, you had these big games that were either online or you had a few split screens. But I remember you said to me the other day that Nintendo... Uh, the console itself, it was something to do with the four controller ports were because of GoldenEye, wasn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, I don't know if this is true. Um, given the story of the development, maybe we can take it with a pinch of salt, but yeah. I don't know. So apparently, um, originally, like the Super Nintendo, the Nintendo 64 was supposed to have two controller ports. And apparently, because of the multiplayer in GoldenEye, it then had four but then if you think about the time frames it doesn't really line up so i'm not yeah, sure how true seven. that is yeah ma- yeah maybe that now you say it like that to, you know put it in perspective with the year it came out especially with games like uh, mario kart 64 i imagine that yeah. came out relatively early in the uh, the console's life same with um super smash brothers those are obviously four player games so maybe exactly. that that bit of information doesn't hold as much weight as i thought it did yeah i mean goldeneye the film came out 25 years ago uh goldeneye the game came out 23 years ago so it's not unreasonable to imagine that people kind of didn't remember exactly how it went down when they're talking in 2012 and later about the game it is the ambition on display here is astounding. If you listen to some of the stuff that they wanted to put in there, not only that, the stuff that they actually achieved, it really is unbelievable uh, for a game at this time to do what it did. Um, so I wanted to talk about the, the gameplay. Now, we had Doom, obviously. Doom was very much a fast-paced, direct shooting game and you'd run around and you'd blast enemies. And that's kind of made a resurgence with the new Dooms in 2016 and the one that's just come out. Yeah, That was 2016, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Doom 2016, and then that was just called Doom. And then the one that came out this year, or the end of last year, Doom Eternal. So you've kind of had a a resurgence of that style of gameplay. Obviously, you've got the cover shooters as well, those first-person shooters that utilise cover a lot. But this is something completely different which I hadn't really realised until I heard the creator talking about it. So this is how he describes it, juggling enemies, which means that if you've got, say, a machine gun or a handgun, you'll shoot one enemy a couple of times. Then if you've got a few enemies on screen, then you'll go and shoot the other one a couple of times. And the way that their animations are done, when they're shot, they take time to recover. And then you might switch backwards and forwards between the two until they obviously die. Um... When you've got a huge amount of enemies on screen, it's really a useful thing. And I've just not heard it described like that. And I don't think I've seen any games really utilise that recently. No, I going back to it, I there wasn't too much that I remembered of this game. I mean, the last time that I played it was when we were at uni. Um, when I randomly... So it was about just, 2012. Yeah, it was around that time when I randomly just decided to get an N64 for some reason. And we played through it then. And I couldn't remember the aiming. I knew that the the target aiming using the analog stick and the, the shoulder buttons, I remember that being very precise and very fiddly. But I'd forgotten that there was kind of an auto 
aim and there was assistance with the um, the general aiming of the game. So going yeah. back to it now and playing it, especially in missions where everything was particularly tight, like in Silo, the auto assist came in really handy because otherwise, if you were having to free aim with the shoulder buttons for everything, I think it would have been borderline unplayable. I think it, yeah, I you can turn off the auto aim and yeah. I didn't do that. Um, I wouldn't have wanted to play this without the auto aim. I think the auto aim makes it playable. Um, but yeah, the 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 um the manual aiming that you can do that was quite a novel feature as well. I mean, you saw it in Virtua Cop, um, but that was an on rail shooter. This was one of the only games where you could freely walk around the levels. You could go into your aim mode. You could aim for someone's leg. You could shoot them in the leg. They'd react to being shot in the leg or the shoulder or the hand uh, or wherever else. And you didn't really get contextual body shot things yeah. <laughs> in in games at the time. So that was a pretty big thing. Now we're used to it. But GoldenEye was the first one to really do that. Yeah, it's... I think for the, for the time it came out, 1997, we've discussed that, you know, FPS games at the time... I don't think they were lacking, but they were wanting for some kind of uh, progress to move forward. And I think Goldeneye really brought that into it with, you know, with the manual aiming, with shooting particular limbs of guards and seeing them react. Like if you shot one of their hands, the guards would double over and hold their hand or, you know, you get a headshot and they'll go down straight away. And even the smaller stuff like it's most prominent in the second mission facility where you're crawling through the ducting at the start and then you can aim down at one of the soldiers who's in one of the cube to- toilet cubicles. If you aim for a headshot, because he's wearing a hat, first things first is you'll shoot his hat off and he won't die. Stuff like that, I think, really makes this game very memorable. Yeah, it's kind of a bit comedic, because obviously if you shot yes. someone in real life, it would go through the hat, but yeah. it's one of the, one of the uh, small touches of comedy that this game has. The fact that... In the second mission, you're, you, you're entering into a toilet, you're shooting someone on the toilet, you go outside and you shoot someone in the urinals. Mm. I mean, it's taken straight from the film, but yeah. it's still funny to see in a game. Yes. Well, I mean, speaking of the film itself, you, you re-watched Goldeneye last night, didn't you? Yes. Goldeneye is not a film that I've watched for quite a while. However, I'm not a bigger Bond fan as you are. I quite like James Bond. I've not seen all of the films. I've seen a majority. Um, But I've always said, and probably always will, unless a really special Bond film comes out, that Goldeneye has and probably always will be my favourite Bond film. So I... Well, you sent me a video yesterday which compares each level to the scenes in the film. And after yeah. you've watched the film last night, would you say that the comparison between the game environments and the environments in the film are pretty accurate? Yeah, I think um, that video that is by a um, YouTuber called Minimi is a pretty, a pretty good, um, basically, appraisal of how it measures up against the film. And for a game that was released in 1997 based on a film... I can't think of any other games from that time or before that time that nailed the look of the film quite like Goldeneye did. I mean, it, it, it's. Um, I sent you that picture for, of the, the streets comparing yes. 
the archway in the streets to the archway in the film. Yeah, then you've got the doors in the archives. You've got the the green strip that you've got all around the archives. You've got um, the entire facility is basically um, it's room for room near enough yeah. uh, to what the film is. So what apparently what happened is the developers were able to go out to the sets that they were filming for GoldenEye because obviously it started being developed before the film came out. And they were also given access to the blueprints and they took a ton of photos of all the props, all the sets, and they did their best to recreate that. In, as we've mentioned before, the limited memory of the Nintendo 64. And I think they've done a really good job. Um, I mean, it's it's more uh, obvious in some levels than others. Things like the dam and the facility are fantastic examples of what they get right. Um, then you've got some levels which aren't based on anything in the film. In yeah. terms of um, the way that the game sticks to the film, it does take a lot of liberties. And I wasn't really aware of the liberties that it takes until I watched that video and I rewatched it last night. Um, so, for example, you've got the two levels set in on the surface and a two-level set in the bunker. But let's put this in perspective. Bond never, ever goes to Seven Eye in the film. So <laughs> I don't know when that would have happened. We, we, you said to me yesterday that re- realistically in the story, nothing, th- th- there's kind of very little in the film that Bond has a direct impact on until, did you say it's the frigate? Or was it Statue So no, statue it, so I, I would say, but even even the frigate... He goes onto the frigate. He finds the dead body. He then, oh no! So he goes onto the small boat called the Manticore. Yeah. And then he finds the body. Then he goes to the frigate. And then on the frigate, all that he does is runs down there and gets caught by the guards. Yeah. And that's it. Nothing. He doesn't actually have any impact. If that hadn't have happened, <laughs> then nothing would have changed. Yeah, there'd have been no difference. Um, so yeah, I, the, what I what I worked out was it was really between. Um, the intro, where obviously he does have a big input, yeah, and Statue Park, yeah, which is about halfway through the game. Um, so it just if the game was to follow the film too closely, there wouldn't be much of a game. So I understand why they did it. Uh, I'd say one of the positives and the negatives is that they do they do take a bit of um, a few liberties with the film, and that's fine. They flesh it out, and that's done quite nicely. But at other points, they assume that you know the story of the film. And they'll cut to bits, presuming you know what happens, like the bit in the archives where you uh, jump out the window with Natalia, and then in the next scene, Natalia's being caught. Yeah, yeah, the only yeah. reason you'd know that is if you'd seen the film and you know what happens. Yeah, because so, the next time that you see her is on the uh, on the train, isn't it? And she's being held yeah. at gunpoint by Oromov. But in the game world, you've just jumped out the window. And she's gone. <laughs> and she's gone, and she's now in the car with Oromov, and you're you've got to get in the tank to follow her. Yeah, it's, it's a funny thing. I, I think it's limitations of the time that this game was made. Because if I think about it, if you look back to the Lord of the Rings games that were on the PS2, not the Fellowship of the Ring, because you know how much I hate that game and I never completed it. But um, the t- I did complete that. Oh, it's awful. It's so bad. Um, but if you look at The Two Towers and Return of the King, I mean, with Return of the King, if you follow um, Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli, their story in the game doesn't start until they go into that 
uh, what is it, the the Valley of the Dead or something, where they they go and try and find yeah. the old king, and that's like more than three quarters of the way through the film. Yeah, Return that's of the that's king. way into the Return of the King. Yeah, and I remember I was very against watching the films when I was younger for some for some reason. I think it's because everyone was watching them. I was like, oh, I was going to be really edgy. I'm like, now I'll get the story from playing the games. <laughs> Don't know why. And um, I remember playing the the Two Towers, and I had no idea what was going on. And then I eventually watched the films. But I think at the time, a lot of these movie tie-in games had to just kind of run with what they could do. And it was very limited by the technology at the time. Um, yeah. But then, as well as that, you had games that did stick to movie um, stories particularly well. One of the highlights for me, which was one of my favourite games at the time, was Star Wars Episode One on the PlayStation 1. Arguably, it's a bad game. But Pod racer. No, no, no. Just the actual um the tie-in game. So the I entire don't, I don't story. remember it at all. It's you know, you start off at the Trade Federation ship with Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon and it ends with um the fight with Darth Maul. And you had a few Star Wars games that came out with episode one, obviously Star Wars Episode One Racer, Star Wars Episode One The Phantom Menace, which is the one that I'm talking about. You then had Jedi Power Battles. Um, oh, I do remember it. It was on the N sixty four as well, I think. Oh, was it? I think so. Well, they had a few on the N64. Je- Jedi Power Battles was always considered to be the better um, Star Wars Episode One game. I never really liked it because it was very arcadey, but I loved Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, the game, which I played on the PS1 because it followed the movie uh, scene for scene. You know, you, you went to the Trade Federation ship, you went to Naboo, you went to Mos Eisley, uh, you went to Coruscant, and you played as different characters. And I know going back to that game now because I've got it on the PS1 I tried it again a few months ago and it's borderline unplayable but <laughs> um, I don't know why I liked it so I think it's because you had lightsabers that's why I liked it um, but you know I think the technology at the time for a lot of these games like with Lord of the Rings like with Goldeneye it did limit it in some aspects but then you had games that came out that showed that the technology could be done I think it just depended on the development and the team that were making it yeah, you, you really um, missed out not seeing Lord of the Rings at the time. I remember, because it came out at Christmas every year for three years. Yeah. I remember this was the time when we were pretty young. Me and my brother went with my mum to the cinema, like Christmas Eve or maybe around then every year. And it was just a big part of Christmas at that time as well. So it's great to watch. I, I, I saw Return of the King in cinemas because I think by that point I was like, okay, I'll... Uh... <laughs> you gave in. Yeah, I, I gave into it. But I've... I think I remember telling you, because when I was still living in London uh, a few years ago, me and one of my mates, Gus, went to, it's called the Prince Charles Cinema on Leicester Square. And they are a cinema that often do movie marathons. I remember you told me this. Yeah. And we did the Middle Earth Marathon, which started at 8pm on a Friday. And it was the first, uh, the first three films were the Hobbit films. And then there was about a half an hour break and then they went on to the Lord of the Rings films. So all in all, I think the cinema, you're in there for probably about 20 hours. Um, Did you do the extended versions as well? It was the extended versions. So <sighs> I'd seen the first Hobbit film, but I hadn't seen the other two. So Second one's the best one. I didn't really like the Hobbit films. Um, but I'm not as big a fan, but the second one the is second the best one. Yeah, one, the second one is the best one. And I think it was about nine o'clock in the morning that's because we went at 8 p.m friday 9 a.m on saturday they just started the fellowship of the ring 
which is my wow. favourite film out of the franchise, as is my mate's Gus. And the intro to the director's cut of The Fellowship is different to the cinema version of Fellowship. And it started, and I said to Gus, I said, mate, I think this is the director's cut. And he was like, no, they wouldn't do that, would they? And I said, I'm certain that this is the director's cut. And there were scenes in there that weren't in the original. I was like, oh my God. And I think we both fell asleep. And by the end of Fellowship, we're like, this is our favourite one. We're, we're going to call it a day. <laughs> because I've not stayed here for yeah, the two director's cut films of Lord of the Rings. And I've not watched them since. And that was four years ago. I think Fellowship's my favourite as well. We watched them recently, actually. Um, yeah, I, I remember we uh, at university... <laughs> we we watched the extended versions of the Lord of the Rings films back to back, didn't we? Oh, what when we, we were up very late to, that uh, night? In our first yeah. year, we went over to um to Zach's. Yeah, we? yeah, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So so going back to uh, I think you're right. Um, what what Lord of the Rings did and what we we mentioned briefly, the awful Tomorrow Never Dies game. What what those games do is uh they link what happens with um, snippets from the film. Yeah. But obviously, as we've discussed in previous episodes, it took a hell of a lot of memory for the Nintendo 64 to even have FMV, F- FMVs, yeah. which a few select games did, but certainly not Goldeneye. So they had to find a way to kind of link these things without um, using any footage from the films. What they did do, which I, I said to you that I loved and... It's still really well done. Is the briefings for each mission? Um, yeah. You've got the main mission briefing. You've got the uh, the mission briefing from M, the mission briefing from Q, and also Money Penny's mission briefing. But they're all in character and they're all really good to read. Yeah, I agree. I remember reading the ones for Money Penny, and for the Brosnan era, it was played by an actress called Samantha Bond. Samantha Bond, which is ironic. Um, but I remember reading those this time round and thinking that's very in character with the relationship that Bond and Moneypenny had in the, the Brosnan era of the films. And I think that those are quite a nice little nod to the fans that if they did want to read the mission briefings, it was very in line with, you know, the era at the time with Judy Dench and uh, Desmond Llewellyn. I mean, Desmond Llewellyn always was the same throughout all of his films with all of the Bonds, wasn't he? Um, wow, apart from Doctor No. Was he not in Doctor No? His first film... No, his first film was from Russia with Love. Right, I see. When he was uh, when he was but a young man. And then, obviously, they tried to get John Cleese in to replace him, didn't they? And Did he do two films? Or was it just the one? Yeah, he did two films. He played it as R. I, th- I don't know if he then played it as Q. But he, he was R originally, yeah, he wasn't was. he? Because he was in the world um, and then... Was it Die Another Day? Yeah, he was in Die Another Day as well. And then the but basically, once they got rid of him, didn't they? Yeah, so that's when they that, that's when they decided not to go forward with John Cleese because obviously with that reboot, it was a lot. They went for a much more serious tone. Yeah, I, so, I think the, the the replacement in um in was it Sky yeah Skyfall isn't it that he first appears? I think that Ben Whishaw is a good cue. Yeah, I think he's a decent. He is. Uh, he's a decent. He's a good actor as well. I've got a lot of time for Ben Whishaw. And they can they can use him for years to come. Um, I I quite like John Cleese in the role. I think he added something to it. It was very of the um, time, wasn't it? The um, yeah. The the later, we we discussed this the other day that Goldeneye was Brosnan's best film that we think, but it was also his his grittiest. It was the most serious. Whereas towards, uh, the world is not enough, and particularly Die Another Day, 
they became very tongue in cheek and I think that John Cleese's R was in line with those films, but you could have never have had an R for films like Casino Royale or Quantum of Solace because it just wouldn't have worked. <laughs> no. The the Daniel Craig films are basically for me, the successor to the um, Timothy Dalton films. Yeah. Timothy Dalton was a far more serious Bond. He was ahead of his and time. And I really liked... Yeah, really ahead of his time. Uh, if you go back and watch um, License to Kill, that's a really good Bond film. And you can see traces of what Daniel Craig does in Timothy Dalton's work. And although I liked Pierce Brosnan, I always would have liked to see Timothy Dalton do a few more Bonds. Um, because I feel like... He was really coming into his own by the end of Licence to Kill. It, so I find I always find that a shame. It, it was a very different feeling, wasn't it, with Timothy Dalton? Because he came off the back very of Alan Roger Moore. <laughs> yeah, so different, yeah. Um, and, I, and I feel like Pierce Brosnan's later films kind of got a bit Roger Moore-esque <laughs> yeah. in some of it. Particularly so, Dying Every Day. Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff they do there. Although I find it an entertaining film. I hate The Invisible Car. I hate the laser that melts the entire <laughs> Arctic plane and then the surfing bit. And oh. <laughs> there's a lot in there. That I, and the ice palace. And oh dear. Yeah, it's Don't get me started. Yeah. And then it ending on a, on a basically a Zeppelin or whatever it is, a yeah. huge aircraft. It's all a bit sci-fi. It's all a bit too far, I think. And, and I think they needed to pull it back for Casino Royale. Um, yeah. So, so... Goldeneye takes these very clever little measures to um, to make use of the hardware that it's on. And I applaud it for that. Uh, we talked about how accurate the levels are to the film and how for that time it's very impressive. Now, games afterwards would go on to do that better. Um, I said to you that Goldeneye is not actually my favourite Bond game on the Nintendo 64 or full stop. I prefer um, The World Is Not Enough on the Nintendo 64 which I think is a better game. Um, there was also a version released on the PS1, but it was by different developers. But if you look at the levels in that game, they're really accurate to the film, uh, unbelievably so for the hardware it's on. And obviously from then on, you've got the Lord of the Rings games and other games based on films that really nail the aesthetic of the films that they're based on. I mean, up, up until today with things like Alien Isolation, obviously mimicking the look and feel of the original Alien film yeah. almost to a T. Um, but these levels also, I think, are somewhat flawed. And the reason is also partly to do with the Nintendo 64 hardware. Um, what you can see immediately is that they're very blocky. They're very grid-like. Um, so there's a lot of squares when you're walking around and there's not a lot of curved geometry and especially in something like the streets, which actually I think is one of the best levels, you can see how blocky everything is. Um, but that was a feature of the time because of the, the hardware it was on. But my bigger issue with the levels is that they completely miss any of the glamour of Bond. And the, on the only time you actually get um, any kind of glamour from Bond is in those briefings at the beginning of the missions. So I think it's missing half of the Bond experience. Well... Speaking of the levels, we we both have our particular favourites and our on our least favourites, and I think we'd probably be remiss to to not discuss them. So, so what are your top three favourites? I'd say the dam, just because same as with what I said for 
Tony Hawk Pro Skater 3. It's the first level and it's the level that I played the most when I was younger. So I really like the dam because that holds a lot of nostalgia for me. I'd say uh, the train, again. Really? Yeah, nostalgia-filled. It's not particularly long. You've just got to get from one end to the other. And I quite enjoy that. And archive. I really enjoy archive. I think, I think it's it's a big level. There's a lot that you can do in there. There's a, a big range of guns you can use as well. And I think from what we discussed earlier, it's very similar to the look in the film with the the painted walls with the green stripe, the bookcases, the the metal doors. I think they did a good job on archive. What I do as well. What, what are your three? I think. Well, uh, just just mentioning archive, I think the only thing that the film did better was obviously, or it, I think it was more densely um, decorated than the game sets. But I think you yeah. can say that in general because it's a film versus a game. Um, but I really like the ending of the archive where you do smash through, through the window yes. to escape. That's that's not something you saw very often in games. Um, I think the train is uh, it's a. Uh, a bit of a remnant from when the game was an on-rail shooter because you can kind of see yeah, the way that you would move forward and the enemies would duck out and you would just shoot them. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an enjoyable level. Didn't really have any problems with it. I think my three favourites would have to be similarly to yours in terms of they were the, the earliest few levels. I, I like the dam. I like the facility. Facility's and good. I think the facility, just because of the accuracy to the film... Yeah. You've got the um, the dialogue with Sean Bean, which is pretty close to the film, actually. You really feel like you're playing a part in the same scene from the film. It's one of those uh, parts of the game that really nails it. Mm. And for a game to so successfully recreate a scene from a film in 1997, it's pretty huge, considering nowadays games are happy to use cutscenes to do that. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's uh, there, there too. And probably the third one... I think, I I think it would have say. to be the streets. Oh, okay. Yeah. This, what, what What did you think I was going to say? I thought you were going to say Statue Park, because I know that you really like the music in that mission. Oh, actually, yeah. No, yeah, actually. <laughs> yeah, I'll say Statue Park, because um, my reasoning for that is, it's, I know a lot of people don't like this, and this is another level where you can kind of see that it used to be an on-rail shooter with the enemies. you got quite a straightforward path. And the enemies jump out at you. Mm. Um, now, what I like about Statue Park, which um, I think goes a bit underappreciated, is the atmosphere of it. It's very moody. Not only is it very moody, you've got this fantastic score playing while you're you're going through the level. Um, and we'll get to score shortly for the whole game. And it really does a great job of recreating the look of the film. You've got all these really well-modelled old statues it looks like a statue graveyard and it feels like a statue graveyard. It, it is creepy and it's very weird because looking back on it now, like I said, I've not watched that film for quite a long time. But when I watched it when I was younger, I didn't really have any comprehension of what the Soviet Union was or <laughs> you know, any of that kind of political communism stuff. Yeah, or... communism. Like, I didn't really know what that was. And like, oh, I'll meet you at Lenin's statue. I was like, oh, who's Lenin? But... You, Lemon. Who's John Lennon? Um, but you look back at it now and you see all the statues. You know, you've got statues in there of the hammer and sickle. You've got a statue of Lenin. Um, you've got like the fist and the open hand. Yeah, and it's, it's very... 
atmospheric I think is the right word and like you say it does feel like a really weird graveyard especially with the mood that the game puts you in with it being night time and with the music as well it it kind of puts you on edge a little bit it's very good creating that tense atmosphere you know I forgot about that one and and really it would have been number one if I'd have thought about it I think it's completely different from any other level in the game yeah it is and it is it it's a bit creepy it's a bit eerie and the same scene from the film is a bit creepy and a bit eerie it's shot in a way that is almost a bit horror-esque yeah uh there's a there's a really nice line you meet for some reason you meet valentin inside a cargo crate (laughs) don't know what he's doing there (laughs) but he's inside a cargo crate this this big um gang lord is just casually waiting for bond in a cargo crate um so he says to you, um, I've got to go, uh, that Yanis's forces are out in in something tonight. They're out they're out, they're out in force tonight. Um and I, and then you've got to go back out and you kinda of don't want to go back out because you think, Oh, they're gonna be waiting outside for me. It's a bit creepy in a way, yeah. I think it it's completely unique. Um, yeah, so that would be I was gonna say the streets just because you get the opportunity to go around in a tank blow up cars you're basically unstoppable in the tank when you run over people you've got this really sick <laughs> kind of Not sound when of yeah and bones crunching yeah it's it's good stuff it, um it, it makes me question as well what we just discussed when this game is supposed to be set or if it's set in a world where things are linear to us happening because there's quite a lot of talk of the soviet union there's quite a lot of you know imagery of communist russia and these levels are set in in Russia, in and around Saint Petersburg, but the the Soviet Union collapsed in 1990, 1991. I'm not sure which it is, but this film came out in '95. So, is this game then set in the late? Uh, this film slash game set in the late '80s, or you know, 1990 when communism was coming to an end, or is it set in modern day, which at the time would have been 1995? But something different had happened with communist Russia and it had continued because by 95, I imagine a majority of communist, um, you know, imagery that was around the country would have been removed. And I mean, it goes. But that's into- exactly the point of the level, isn't it? If it's 1995, all of the commun- communist imagery has been taken and put in this graveyard which is why everything's so haphazardly placed. It's like an aircraft graveyard or something of all these things that are no longer used, which is make, is what makes it really creepy in a way. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's interesting because I'd, I'd be interested to know as well, linked with this game, how long it took Russia, particularly places like Moscow and St. Petersburg, to remove all of that stuff from, you know, from their, their cities because... I, I, I'm quite interested in Russian history and I know that after Stalin died, Khrushchev started a massive push for something called de-Stalinization and even today, you've still got people that cling on to the the Russia that Stalin made and people that still praise him and his imagery is still very much up there. It's a small demographic of people, but it still exists and I'd be interested to know how long it took the Russians to remove all of that communist imagery into places like Statue Park, which is obviously a fictional place. But I think it 
looking back on it now, it's not something I'd have ever thought about when I was younger. But now that I have an interest in that kind of stuff, I find it quite interesting to see, you know, the, the links with, you know, communist Russia and all that kind of stuff, which isn't a tangent I thought I'd go off on when talking about Goldeneye. But <laughs> I, d- I don't really know enough about it, but I do I do vaguely recall that Statue Park is a real place that they based it on. Really? Where, yeah, where all these statues basically were landed. Um, I vaguely remember that. I'm sure I've heard someone mention it before. Um, I can't, I don't think I saw it this time when I was looking through, but... I'm going to Google it. Um, yeah, I, th- I thought it was a real place that, that they'd based it on. Um, okay, so... the One of the things that it did, we talked about the briefings of the missions. Uh, one of the things that it does is... With each difficulty level, you've got agent, secret agent, and double O agent. It increases the objectives that you've got for yes. uh, to do in each mission, which I think is again, it's a really novel thing that wasn't really done before then, and was done very often afterwards. But nowadays, you don't really see it, which is a, which is a shame. Um, it's this kind of non-linear approach to difficulty, because in dif- uh, difficulty in games usually means enemies have more health, you have less health. That's it. Um, but here there's more to do. It encourages you to see more of the levels and encounter more of the enemies. Not only that, but enemies are more aggressive and you, you do lose health quicker. I find they push more. Um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, this kind of leads me on to another thing that I, I, after I completed it, I was thinking about, and I want to get your perspective on this, which is, um, is, is the game cheap? Is the AI cheap? Is it uh, is it weighted against you, the player? I don't think so. Just a quick note as well. I've just Googled it, and Statue Park is based on somewhere called Memento Park, which is in Hungary. So there's a bit of snippet. I knew, I knew there was something. Yeah, I remember seeing something about it. Interesting. I'll read yeah, it very, later. Um, very creepy. So I, I was listening slash reading slash watching. I can't remember which it was. Uh, something about the AI <laughs> in this game. And apparently... I mean, I know that you had particular struggles with Bunker Two, didn't you? With the AI continuously just—it it wasn't that. Moving. It was. Uh, it was. Um, it was because you have to do that level stealthily. I, I worked out exactly what was going on with the AI in this level. So you have to do it stealthily. Um, if the game, if you trigger an alert, you basically get infinite enemies. And what the game actually does is, for every enemy that is ordinarily populating the level, that enemy will clone. Um, until you uh, kill the original enemy. Um, it will keep cloning basically infinitely until you kill the original enemy walking around the level. Um, so you can't set off any alarms, but you have to take out obviously all the original enemies based in the level. Now, there's one camera which is really awkwardly placed, and I was always just a second too late in shooting it out, and the alarm would go off, and there's this one guard which has triple the health of all the other guards, He's got two Destivies and he's uh, basically like a Terminator. But he keeps coming. So obviously you kill him. I killed him probably about 10 times. And then um, he just keeps coming back. Now my kill count at the end of this level when I did this was 56, I think. And I looked at someone online. They they killed about 30. So I was thinking (laughs) I've basically fought close to double the amount of enemies of what I should have done doing completing this level with with the ai i was um i saw this piece of information i don't know how accurate it is but it's in regards to their alert state 
and it depends on how many shots you fire loud shots that's correct um compared to their location so if you fire one shot then you might get away with it if you fire two then there's a chance that one or two guards will come for you however if you fire three it will alert all of the guards that are in a relatively close proximity to you to your location and you'll get rushed yeah and i think particularly for speedrunners and for people that like to challenge to get through particular levels using the sound um, alert or whatever you want to call it using the gunshots can help you because if you think of missions in particular like silo to get through a lot of the doors you don't have a key card unless you go out of your way to find one to open these doors so the best way to get through that level is to continuously shoot so guards will open doors to come and get you so that you can then rush through um so i think the the, the design in terms of what alerts them is quite interesting because it isn't like one shot bang everyone's on you it's one two three and if you compare that to something like um metal gear solid that came out just a year later if you fire a gun without a silencer in the vicinity of guards even if they can't see you immediately they all know where you are you get into an alert state and you know unless you can run away and hide you just have to deal with it you know what i mean yeah, I think it's quite a fair game. And I think, so uh, with the Soviet, if you fire three shots, you're fine. If you do a burst of three shots, if you fire anything more than that, or you do another three shots, then yeah, it does a, an increased alert and you're, you're likely to get all the guards running. Um, but you won't get guards running from rooms unless it does a bigger alert because they kind of just keep to themselves. The other thing is if you're looking at guards through... I mean, one of the things that this game has got is it's got uh, transparent windows, which was quite a big yeah. thing at the time. Not and all you them, can though. see guards. Sorry, not all of the windows though, particularly in control, which I imagine we'll discuss shortly. Yeah, yeah. So you've got a few that aren't. Um, yeah, but most are transparent, yeah. and you can see the guards on the other side, but they can't see you. And now this was done deliberately because they wanted to encourage you to uh, scope out the guards on the other side before you decided on your plan to proceed. Okay. Generally speaking, there's it's fair, and there is a there is um there are a few right ways to do it. There are also some wrong ways to do it. Um, the one the one thing that I find to be possibly cheap is the kickback when you're shot. And now it's part of the game. Yes. Um. So basically, when you're shot, you you get knocked back physically, so that you're actually moving backwards. But also, you can't fire again straight away. And if you've got, say, three guards or more all shooting at you with machine guns, it basically means you can't get a shot in on them because they're they're constantly kicking you back. Now, I was reminded of this when I was doing the Cradle, which is the final level. You drop down onto that very small platform with Trevelyan, and I suddenly had um, memories of the time when I played it, when we were playing it together in 2012. The first time I did that, he knocked me back off the thing very easily. Then this time when I did it, I thought, oh, this this bit was awful. <laughs> I almost fell off, but I just managed to get myself back on. He was just about to open fire on me, but I just got a round in on him, knocked him back. And I thought, I completely forgot what that was like, but I just remembered at the last minute. But the knockback can be really um, effective against you. Yes. And when you think about the fact that this game doesn't run very well, the frame rate is not great. Um, and the precision of your shots is not fantastic either. It can really 
uh, you, for example, in Control, I did one one playthrough where I literally had full health, full armor when I started it, but one guard, um, I did a I did a round on him, and he just didn't die. I thought I'd killed him. I turned back round and he was still there, and he shot me, and then that was it. I lost all my health, all my armor within about. 30 seconds well and obviously i'd start over when, when when you and me played this eight years ago which is a scary thing to say that was eight years ago yeah um i, I played through a majority of the game didn't i and then when it get, got to control i i i don't really have much patience um well i never used to have a lot of patience for a lot of stuff if i felt that i was just doing you turned it off a few times this time as well you told me yeah um my patience has grown since 2012 but there were times during this game where i was like i can't be can't be asked it was usually if the ai did something stupid i.e natalia running in front of me while i was shooting people and i just shot her and then she died so i'd have to restart the mission um but 2012 was um you ended up finishing the game when I just couldn't be asked anymore, I couldn't get past control, which was a mission that I struggled with. And I remember when you completed it back then, you struggled a bit with it then as well. Oh yeah, I and did. And then yeah. if we fast forward to now, eight years later, we both played through control separately because obviously we don't live with each other. And I think you said it took you five attempts to complete control this time, didn't it? It was on the fifth attempt that I completed it twice, Natalia died. Yeah, it's... So. It's a pain in the ass level, and it is. I I think it took me four or five goes as well. I can't remember how many, but again, it was just one of those really frustrating things. And it's because you just you just don't have room to breathe with the amount of people coming at you, coming to shoot Natalia, and the fact that Natalia's life bar is pretty small anyway. And in my opinion, that's the worst level. I don't think it's designed particularly it is. well either. It was. Yeah, easily for me, the most frustrating level. Now, I said to you before you did it, and, and I think this is true, there's a bit of luck involved in that level. You can get to that point and have full everything, but the game randomly spawns. The number of enemies is random. Where they come from is random. So someone I, I read online, someone said they only had three enemies in this whole section. I was thinking, that must be amazing. Um, I didn't have anything close to that. I must have had 15 um, at least there's a lot of luck based in this game and I was talking with you just before we started recording because I sent Dan a video link to a speed run I think it's at GDQ I can't remember um, if it is at GDQ uh, for the uninitiated yeah, yeah GDQ, it's games done quickly games yeah. done quickly so it's a charity um, a charity event that they do twice a year GDQ and then SGDQ which is summer games done quickly where a a selection of um, speedrunners for particular games come together for charity. I think it's usually for cancer, uh, cancer trust in the US, and they basically stream themselves running through games. And I sent down a link to one of my favourite speedruns because I quite enjoy watching speedrunning content. I think it's really interesting to see how good certain people are at games and how fast they can get through these particular. Um, particular games as well and one of my favorite ones is the speed run for goldeneye and it's a speed run that's done i think it's 24 minutes they play through the entire game there's two people speed running it a guy called r white goose and this other guy i can't remember his name and they play through the entirety of goldeneye with two controllers so one of them is 
controlling the movement and the gun and I think the other one is controlling the camera and they say as what Dan was just saying earlier with control a lot of it does come down to luck and particularly with the level frigate you only have to release two hostages one of the um, mission objectives is to save hostages and not let them be executed and if too many hostages get executed then it's a, uh, an immediate fail state and you only have to save two of them to complete that objective but what these guys were saying during the run is that it's entirely based on um, RNG um, of what way the hostages will escape once you've um, executed their executioners and some of them can take up to one to two minutes to escape whereas some of them will take 20 to 30 seconds and apparently a lot of speedrun um, runs of this game can be killed by the frigate level just because of the luck that they get with who they free and the route that they take while escaping so I think you're quite right in saying that with control, a lot of it does come down to luck. And that runs across a few of the different levels as well, particularly with Frigate as well. Yeah, um, with control, like I said, two times Natalia died. There was that one time where that one guard caught me off guard. Uh, and there was... Uh, so one of the times when Natalia died, what I did was I carried on anyway because I wanted to get my head around what I still needed to do to finish the level. Um, then there was the the fourth time, which was um, when I finished it, finished that section, and then you've still got to get to the exit. And that can be the hardest bit, because you've got barely any health left from that onslaught of guards, and you just have to still... You've still got to mine one of the mainframe computers, and uh, then you've got to get out. Um, so it, it is, you, you do have to get lucky and you do have to hope things go your way in that final bit. So, um, there's one more, uh, body armor that you can find on your way out. And I literally ran for that. And then by that point, you've got enough body armor to easily make it to the exit. So with these levels, if you really want to get good at this game, you've got to really learn the levels inside out learn where the guards are, learn the behaviours. It's quite fun, but you've got to have the time to do it. Um, this is not a game that you're going to race through on the higher difficulties and do it on skill alone. You need to learn those levels to, to get good at the game, basically. Well, the, um, w w one of the points that the speedmakers make is that the, the guys who are the top speedrunners for GoldenEye, they put up to hundreds of hours in each level so that they know exactly how everything is going to run, the different things that could happen, so they know how they can adapt. And, I mean, how many hours did we say that we put into Final Fantasy IX? About, I put 36? Yeah, 30-something. And the idea of 100 hours for each particular level on a game, like it blows my mind. I can't... Oh, yeah. That's longer than I've played any game ever, I think. Probably same for me. It's crazy. Most I've played is 155 hours on Breath of the Wild, and that was because I loved it. I wasn't replaying the same three-minute level <laughs> over yeah. and over again. It's why, though, like I say, I really enjoy watching speedrunners, and it's what makes them so entertaining. It's these people have just mastered 
the the game. And if you look at speedruns for the original um, Super Mario Brothers on the NES, the speedrunners on that, they're shaving milliseconds off the world record each time they play, and it's down to particular frames that they finish a level on or particular pixels. That they, it's crazy. I can't imagine being that focused in on something. And it's no. why they're... You know, it's why they're world record holders, but it's, it's un, unreal. And, you know, doing, you know, statue park for a hundred hours. No. <laughs> wow. Well, the atmosphere would wear off, wouldn't it? Exactly. We don't want that. Yeah, uh, it is. It's, don't these people basically do it as a career, though? Those people that are spending this amount of time. Yeah, yeah. It? You know, they're Twitch streamers. They get a good amount of tips. They get sponsorships from people. There. Yeah, you couldn't really not do it as a career. You couldn't really do it in your free time. Yeah. I don't have 200 hours that I could spend playing the dam. Yeah, to they're, they're off professional gamers. They're professional gamers and yeah. it sh- it shows and you know you've got people like um I'm sure you've probably you've probably heard of Ninja, haven't you? Yes. Yeah, you've got Ninja who is or was I don't know if he still plays Fortnite, but one of the biggest Fortnite players in the world and he puts tweets out you know about how much he puts into these games and he's now sponsored by I think it's by Adidas they're considered professional athletes now because yeah. gaming is now esports and if you look at places like South Korea they have stadiums filled with fans watching people compete at games like Overwatch and you don't even have to go into the amount of people that will watch competitions for games by Blizzard, you know, games yeah. like um, League of Legends or or StarCraft or World of Warcraft. You know, it, it's insane. And the amount of money that these people make, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, media is changing. The way that people now consume YouTube videos or yeah. any other kind of, that kind of thing is huge. And people aren't watching, let's say, terrestrial TV anymore. I don't. Where you've got your adverts in. Yeah, I don't either. I don't even have a TV license. No, I stream I. things. Yeah. So it, it's it's changing. Things are changing. And, and gaming, um, I remember hearing, I think this is true, is, is the, biggest, um, the biggest genre on YouTube that people watch. That so it's huge. Me. I think followed by... Um, makeup tutorials or something <laughs> but i mean if, if you look back on it a lot of the stuff that you and me did at uni was we'd watch gaming videos on youtube and a lot of it at the time were let's plays of watching people play through games whereas i've always been more interested in reviews and you're quite interested in the techie side of things now but you've got people watching hundreds of hours of content on youtube of people just playing games like minecraft and yeah the people that are uploading this are making so much money it's yeah it's unreal and you know you look at up until recently a youtuber called pewdiepie was the most subscribed youtuber on the platform um with over now 100 million subscribers and the amount of money that he's made from it you know he he's a multi-millionaire just from yeah, yes playing Four games a year yeah just from playing games on um on his computer and uploading his reaction on a face cam is mental, but it's a lot harder for people now to break into that kind of thing because the market's so oversaturated. Yeah, 
it's so you have to provide cool. something really unique in order yeah. to even uh, get a look in really exactly um so we've talked a bit about the the look of the game how do you think this holds up in terms of its graphics um it it depends what you're playing it on doesn't it because i said to you yesterday that you see some people playing it at 60 frames per second with really sharp graphics uh when they're emulating it and on the n64 it it looks a bit dirty i'd say is the right word it's got a bit of yeah muddy look to it which is to be expected because it's 23 years old you know you look back at mgs1 which is 22 years old and that's the same it looks muddy it looks grimy but i think it fits in with a lot of the environments that the game puts out there you look at archive you look at facility these are dank dingy places and even if you compare the look of facility in the film it's pretty similar in terms of yeah you know it's just dark so the the graphics i think i can't say that it's aged really well but there are certainly games out there that have aged a lot worse than golden i have yeah definitely and it's like i said the levels that they've picked are those grimy dirtier levels yeah and it, it is missing the glamour of bond which i think future bond games would remedy certainly in the world is not enough you've got a lot more of that glamour which is one of the reasons why i prefer it um yeah it does look muddy but at the same time what i would say is for the the 3d environments and bond within those environments it all looks really solid it all looks like really this was the time where 3d didn't always look 3d especially on the ps1 side because uh the technology within the ps1 wasn't able to properly render 3d environments um the wording escapes me but there's a certain thing that it wasn't able to do um so that when you looked at textures from a certain angle whereas on the nintendo 64 you could look at them and they'd look um how they should do from that perspective on the ps1 they would look warped which is where you get texture warping and it all looks a bit shimmery whereas on the now, the anti-aliasing is uh, to do with the pixels, smoothing out the pixels. Oh, right. Um, so it's a bit different. It's something like um, point vector something or other. Okay. Uh, I've, I've, I've looked into it before, and this was one of the big differences between The World Is Not Enough on PlayStation and on the Nintendo 64. Nintendo 64, again, you've got these really solid 3D environments, and the PS1 is, is still a bit shimmery. It's definitely a better game than Tomorrow Never Dies, and it's quite enjoyable to play, but it's, it's it feels like it's on the verge of 3D, but not quite there. If you get yeah, what I'm saying, really. yeah, it's even something like Metal Gear Solid feels a bit like that. It feels a bit shaky. Well, yeah, I mean MGS is is almost top down, isn't it? Yeah, uh, for a lot of the game. Whereas Goldeneye and the World Is Not Enough, the first person, so you can't get away with stuff like that. Everything does have to be generated properly because you're looking at it from the point of view of the character that you're playing and if it looked weird then you'd just be like this hasn't been designed well what's that supposed to be and you, you can say that of some of the stuff in there like you look at the statue of Lenin in Statue Park it looks really weird <laughs> but you can't expect everything to be perfect um, and I think with the technology that they had and the environments they were creating I think Rare did a really good job on it and it's why you know, Goldeneye, people are still playing it today. You've got Goldeneye Source, 
which is a lot of the games remade and reimagined from mods of people playing online. You've got the remake of GoldenEye on the Wii, and you've also got the game that wasn't very good, uh, GoldenEye Rogue Agent. GoldenEye, yeah, yeah. People... I've, I've played that. Pe- people love GoldenEye, and I think nothing... I, th- I think Nintendo, if they could ever get the rights to it again, which I know they can't, and it's all muddied up with Rare being with Microsoft now and Nintendo being different. Well, it's not even nice. Yeah, Nintendo, Activision, who had it briefly, whoever's got the license now, I don't even know who that is, Microsoft, Rare, uh, yeah, the uh, MGM who owned the Bond license. It's never going to get sorted, that isn't. I don't know if, how they ever would sort that. If If they ever could, it's... It's one of those things that I think if Rare remade GoldenEye in the same kind of um, idea that you know Square Enix, uh, Square has remade Final Fantasy VII, if they remade GoldenEye using the same environments, you know, very keep it very similar to the original, I think they would make so much money because this game holds so much nostalgia for so many people. Yeah, I agree, especially with the um, music um, as well. Yeah, and in two seconds we'll get to the music. So when I was talking about the solidness of the levels, I think, I suppose what I mean is, with the texture warping and that on the PlayStation, for example, it could also be um, the uh, the Mega Drive or any, any other thing. Dreamcast less so. Um, but because of that, it almost felt like you could clip into the walls, even if you couldn't, it kind of looked like you could. Um, whereas everything felt really solid and like you could, you would run into a wall and you're not going to run through the wall kind of thing on the GameCube and games just got better and better at that. Um, the soundtrack is phenomenal. Basically they were given the license to use the James Bond theme and they adapted it in so many different ways. And this soundtrack is good enough for me. Sometimes I will listen to this. There's a higher res uncompressed version of the soundtrack and obviously the, the Nintendo 64 version is hugely compressed uh, and the high-res uh, uncompressed version is really great to listen to. It's such a good soundtrack. It is. And this seems to be a theme for all of the games that we've done on this podcast so far is that we always say that the soundtrack's good. But if you compare it to all of the other games that we've done, I think that GoldenEye probably stands out as the best soundtrack of the games we've covered so far. I'd maybe say that Final Fantasy IX is up there as well because I love the music in that game, but it doesn't hold a candle to Goldeneye. I mean, anyone that's played these games back in the day, I remember a few years, well, a few years ago, when, when we are at uni, I'd play specific tracks from Goldeneye on YouTube and I'd say, what's this level? And you'd get it. And I think you could do that to a lot of people. People know the music for The Dam. People know the music for Facility. People know the music for Cradle. It's one of the great video game soundtracks, I think. And yeah, like you say, it is compressed for the N64, but it was one of the the things I really enjoyed going back to play this because I know all these tracks, you know, anyway, but they're just so easy to listen to and they're just so good. And I don't particularly like the Statue Park level, but I, I agree with you and it's one of the best pieces of music in the game. I think what it is, is think about how many James Bond games have come along after this. Yeah. Not a single one of them, including The World Is Not Enough, comes close to the soundtrack of this one. 
Um, they've all got access to the Bond themes. A lot of them end up using the stuff straight from the movies. This one took it and and basically it iterated so. on it. Yeah, it made it its own. So they were they were talking about how many different instruments, how many different ways they could play the Bond theme, and it shows. Um, I was looking at the two secret levels earlier. I didn't actually play them. I just had to look through them, and they've got great soundtracks as well. Both yeah, really unique do. to their setting. It's it's just really catchy. It really fits the mood. It really fits the tempo. And just a, just another example of the great sound design in this game is in the jungle. The jungle doesn't actually have any music. All you've got is the ambient sounds of the jungle. And I quite like that because it really set the mood perfectly. It, it, because you didn't have that really racing music going along with it, you felt like you could slow down and do it at your own pace. And if you know that level, if you don't do it at your own pace, you're just going to get wiped out. So, yeah, it's a it's good thing, really. Probably my my second least favorite level in the game. I'm not a big. So, what were your three it. least favorite levels? I don't think we really, really touched on that. Control, jungle, and maybe runway. I think runway is a good level, but it's just a very nothing level it's by which, the numbers. Yeah, yeah. But so I I don't dislike runway for the way that it's designed, or the fact that I don't think it's good. I just think that there's not much going on in runway. It's just get the key, get to the plane, which yeah needed to be there because that's what happens in the film as soon as you come out of the facility. But I just didn't find it very interesting. Besides the fact you can get a tank, which is quite cool. But the de- the designers yeah. said of runway that that it was their least favorite level because it was so straightforward as well. Yeah. It's it's very so. short. I mean, you could complete that level in probably two minutes probably less if you're really good at running <laughs> running the game it's it's very short but yeah i'd say those two and jungle and control we've we've discussed why particularly with control we don't like it with jungle i just uh, it's just because of the, the not not the mist but the the draw distance you can't yeah. see where turrets are shooting at you from or where soldiers are because they're pretty well camouflaged and then you've got the fight with Xenia and she's got a grenade launcher and can just, you know, whack your face off within two shots. It, it's a hard level. Um, and I don't think it's a really bad level, but I just didn't enjoy it. I, d- I didn't enjoy no. the design of it. What, what, what are your three least i think i agree with you on controlling jungle and my third one would be bunker two yeah only because no and and i just i just feel like the level's not good enough to be visited twice i was quite happy with it being there the first time yes it's expanded a bit the second time but why on earth was (laughs) why was natalia imprisoned anyway it doesn't explain that Uh, she's in prison Again, it's uh, it's it's taking liberties with the story, isn't it? And if you haven't watched the film, then there might be stuff about this game that you just don't understand when you play through it. So it's not that the 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 bunker hasn't blown up yet. So there's nothing really that she could have done wrong because the golden eye has not been set off yet there. So why is she locked up? I think it's because, she's meant to work there. I think it's because she's really annoying and gets in the way of people when they're shooting. Oh yeah. So I mean, yeah. Her, her. <laughs> sometimes her AI is really good. Uh, in jungle, she can be pretty good. She can take out a few guards with her magnum, um, but sometimes she's really annoying. Um, 
it, it will be interesting to see how we discuss the AI because the next game that we're going to be playing, which we'll t- talk about towards the end of the episode, the AI for your companion in that game, some people say is amazing, other people say isn't particularly great. So it'll be interesting comparing a game that's 20 Is that the next one or is it the one afterwards? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've got. Well, we'll talk about it at the end. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So you mentioned you mentioned the uh, the draw distance in the jungle. I think the draw distance in each of these levels was was dependent on how complex the levels were. And I think because jungle is is um is drawing all that foliage, it's big. the draw distance was pushed in quite close because there's a lot uh, going obviously on it was, in there. Yeah, a lot of polygons being used. Whereas something like the dam, you can see all the way across the other end of the dam, especially with the sniper rifle. Yeah. Um it's quite impressive. Um also I just I just wanted to give a nod to the animations, the death animations and just general <laughs> animations. They're great for for the time. I think uh, they're so good. Faces. Yeah, yeah. Weird the Max Payne faces. faces. Yeah, that's it. But no, yeah. I also like the outfits for Bond as he get as he goes through the different levels, he's got different outfits for every area. So in in the in the cold of Siberia, he's got his uh, he's he's got his woody coat on. In the jungle, he's got his green shirt on. Yeah, it's 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 just um, attention to detail that you didn't see often back then. And when he raises his watch to his face, you can see his different sleeves of his different outfits. I, lo- I love the pause menu and the watch um, feature in the game. I think it's quite. I do. Um, just just out of interest, like we said pre like previously in the episode, that you're a uh, you're a big Bond fan. I think I know the answer to this, but what's your favourite Bond game, if you want to reveal that information? Because I know you're going to do a YouTube series on the Bond games at some point. Uh, so it would be The World Is Not Enough on the Nintendo 64. Okay, that wasn't what I was going to guess. I was going to say... Um, from Russia With Love. Yeah, I thought you were going to say From Russia With Love. No, I think um, I think The World Is Not Enough is a better game. I appreciate the fact that From Russia With Love has Sean Connery. Um, and I do really enjoy that game. But I think uh, the world is not enough. Is a better actual game. Okay, interesting. I mean, I, I've not played all of the Bond games. I've played a fair few, but I'd say up there probably my favourite will be Goldeneye. But I don't have a particularly keen eye on the Bond series like you do. So for me, it was just yeah. oh, I quite enjoy Goldeneye. It's good. Um, and I'd say probably second up there would be uh, would be 007 Legend. No, um, <laughs> would be. Uh, would be That'd Nightfire. Be... Oh, that was horrendous. That game. What Legends? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's not there's good. a few. There's a few pretty good ones in there. There's also Everything or Nothing is a really good one, um, which kind of is its own story, and it's the first one and the last one to actually feature the voice Pierce of Pierce Brosnan. Bloodstone yeah. was supposedly all right, wasn't it? That was all right. Yeah, it was all right. Um, I actually didn't dislike the GoldenEye remake on the Wii. I thought it was pretty fun. No. Um, it's different, different class of game. It's completely different from the original, but if you take it for what it is, it's quite entertaining. Um, and with the original Wii controls, which obviously you use the Wii remote to aim, it doesn't feel like a Call of Duty clone. Whereas if you play it with a controller, I can completely understand why it would. Yeah, you get what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Some of the secrets in this game are just great. You've got uh, the Aztec level, and you've got the Egyptian level. Uh, in the Aztec level, you face off against the Mega Bond villain Jaws, the only villain to appear in two films, apart from Blofeld, played by several different actors. 
and um, you've got Egyptian which you face off against Baron Samadhi from from Live and Let Die. Uh, that's quite creepy as well um, with the laughter. Yeah, his laugh's horrible. The fact that he doesn't die. Yeah, um, and I, and I, I love the fact that in Aztec. This is a full-blown level, which is a secret level, which you... So you unlock the Aztec level from completing the game on Secret Agent all the way through, and you unlock the Egyptian level from completing the game on Double O Agent all the way through. Uh, so with Aztec, you've got a full-blown shuttle launch within the level, which they've animated the entire thing, and it's a it's a complex level. And... Egyptian level again you've got all these Egyptian pillars you've got quite a complex level it's not as good as Aztec but um, each have got their own soundtrack and on the multiplayer menu you've got uh, you can play as Oddjob Jaws um, Baron Samadhi or Mayday and anyone that played using Oddjob I used, I always used to be Oddjob when I was a kid I loved him I loved him anyway apart from the fact that he's short yeah, he's a lot harder to aim at, wasn't he? So no one liked playing against our job because he was harder to hit. No. Um, yeah. The, 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 the two secret levels were their fan service, really, aren't they? It, it's for the the big Bond fans. You know, you've got the Moonraker guns in there. You've got Jaws, who's obviously a series favourite. And with the the Egypt level with Baron Samadhi, you've got the Golden Gun, which takes out anyone with one hit. They're, they're good I don't levels. know why Baron Samadhi was in Egypt, though, because he never was in Egypt. Yeah, it's, it's a weird one. But it, it, as well as that with the secrets, you also got the um, the extensive cheats as well with this game. Yeah, loads. Loads the, and loads of cheats. The paintball gun, you've got DK head mode, you've got invincibility, ammo, max guns, invisibility as well. Um, the, the, the cheat menu for this game is quality, and it throws back to a time when... Do you remember like cheat guidebooks and stuff like that that you used to be able to get? Whereas yeah. nowadays, I think you mentioned it in the last episode that if you want extras or if you want cheats, you have to pay for them, which is a shame. Yeah, yeah, they chucked so much in here. Uh, it was a very generous game, a lot of game for your money. And when when the game released, no one really thought it was going to do very well. And it ended up selling over 8 million copies and was the third best-selling game on the Nintendo 64 behind Super Mario 64 and Super uh, and Mario Kart 64. Yeah, that doesn't show so, those two in front of it. Like I said, I've never played um, Mario 64. but I mean, that game is a pioneer and yeah. that is on the list. I'm sure, is, is that on the list? No. Is that not on the list? No, I don't think so. That is mad. Maybe because of the time that it came out. Maybe it was so. 96. So it would have been just past or just before the time where you really start to see these things. Yeah, you've got the Mario I mean, games on there, haven't you? You've got Galaxy and Odyssey, I think. Yeah, they're great. But in terms of, I don't think any single game um, was so important for 3D gaming than Mario 64. Well, it's Mario 64 came out and then on the PS1, I think, the first proper 3D game that was somewhat like Mario 64 was Croc which was supposed to originally be a Yoshi game. And I've got Croc, it's all right, but from what I've I've seen playthroughs of Mario 64, I know quite a lot about it. It's nowhere near as good, uh, nowhere near as flowy as Mario 64 is. Croc was just one of those non-games. I think Sony wanted Croc to be a, uh, you know, one of the faces of the PlayStation, but overall it ended up being 
for the PS1 anyway, it ended up being Crash. Yeah. And maybe Spyro to some extent, which are the two famous platformers for that system. But exactly, I, I'd say that Mario has always held the, the, the platform king. Position. Oh yeah, it's not not even any nothing close to it. And that's because even, even go on. Yeah, I mean even even those games that people do mention, they've not had the 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 length of time. They don't have the two D games. And to be completely honest, as good as the Crash games were at the time, I don't think they're really comparable to the best Mario games. I I, I love Crash Bandicoot, but. I mean, the big rival for Mario at the time was Sonic, wasn't it? And then if you look at the absolute hellscape that is the Sonic games post-Sonic Adventure in 2000, and to some extent Sonic Adventure 2, but I mean, you and me hold our reservations with that game these days. You know, that the 3D yeah. Sonic games are just... They're just bad. And for someone that was, you know a pretty strong contender against Mario in the uh, the 16-bit generation to see how well Mario does now compared to Sonic. It's just bleak. <laughs> yeah, I always find that Mario iterates and it's very... I mean, something like Crash is a good straightforward platformer, but it is. It's, it's, your viewpoint's are very limited, so you can just jump from one place to another, whereas Mario was always kind of very broad... And you could do a lot of things, and there was a lot of freedom in the way you did your objectives. I think they're quite different games, to be quite they honest. They are. Well, did you did you ever hear of what the um, what Naughty Dog called Crash before it had a name? Something Mario related. Uh, they called it the Sonic Ass game because it was a pretty linear platformer, but instead of seeing it yeah. from the side, you saw it from behind. So it was called Sonic's Ass Game um, <laughs> before it became Crash Bandicoot. Nice little bit of trivia for you there. So one of the other secrets we'll just go over quickly was um, this was taken out of the game. There was the ability to use all the previous Bonds with the exception of George Lazenby. So you had Sean Connery in his white tux. You had, you had uh, Roger Moore. You had Timothy Dalton in his um, open jacket. Roger Moore in his double-breasted tux. And you had, uh, obviously, Pierce Brosnan. Um so this was this was taken out because apparently um, Nintendo and Rare, maybe MGM, um, they thought that some of the Bond actors would um, ask for money. Well, they thought particularly that Sean Connery would ask for money, but then they thought if the other Bond actors heard that Sean Connery had asked for money, um, they would then ask for money as well. Um, but Sean Connery didn't actually have any, any direct say in it. But also um, there's the character called Jack Wade in the... Goldeneye film played by Joe Don Baker. He uh he refused to let them use his likeness in the game as well. And obviously there's no voiceover in the game, so Pierce Brosnan for a long time didn't use his voice in the game in these games. So obviously people are quite protective of their likenesses and their images, which is, which is fair enough, it's their likeness, their image. Just yeah, something that's interesting, face. I think. So this game was number twenty seven on the list with a score of 96 uh it's got a huge legacy and one of the things that i read in terms of the ai the complex ai used in this game apparently because half-life came out a year after this Mm. um valve said to rare that they had to completely rewrite their ai once goldeneye came out because goldeneye set a new standard 
So you could say that Goldeneye was partly responsible for the success of Half-Life. Interesting. That's quite cool. Yeah, so so this game has been hugely influential. Obviously, um, went on to spawn Goldeneye clones, which you could call them, which are things like The World Is Not Enough, although, like I said, still my favourite Bond game on the N64. Um, also had the direct, or the spiritual sequel in Perfect Dark, and then obviously Which we we'll know what to. happened to the Perfect Dark series. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Perfect Dark. Um, then the developers at Rare, Rare kind of fell apart when Microsoft bought them. Yeah. So uh, they formed Free Radical. Free Radical made Time Splitters, Time Splitters Two, Time Splitters Future Perfect, Time Splitters Two, and Future Perfect are fantastic games. Um, I wish they were on this list. Um, and then they kind of fell off the map as well. So really, you've got nothing quite like these games anymore, which is really sad, I think. No, the the, the rare games in the uh, in the late nineties and very early noughties were were something that you could if 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 it was a rare game, you knew that it was going to be good. You know, you had Goldeneye, you had Banjo Kazooie, uh, Diddy Kong Racing, which you always said is amazing, and Great. then one of the best, well, fan favorites of the N sixty four, Conker's Bad Fur Day as well. Yeah. People love that. Mm. Best graphics game on the N64 as well. Yeah, so Rare, you know, they've, they've got a big legacy. And I think the, the the most recent game that I think they did was um, that Sea of Thieves game, which I heard yes. mixed things about. I think people quite like it, but it's not it's not the Rare of old. It's a very different game. Microsoft Rare is very different from Rare when it was owned by uh, Nintendo. Yeah, well, you know, you had... Co-owned. Banjo-Kazooie being a massive fan favourite for the N64 and then they said they were going to do a new Banjo game in the, I think it was 2010 that it came out and it was Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts which was just a weird kart racer game which everyone hated. It's, it's, it's what it is is um, basically you. it's actually a single player game. It's, it might have multiplayer elements but you build components That's to it. use in the single player. It's not quite like the old banjo because it's quite inventive it's actually all right it's quite fun but it's a, a very different game from those original games yeah massively so but yeah um okay so do you think it deserves its place on the list number 27 score of 96 i'd say so is it the top rated fps on the list no um i think perfect dark might be higher uh, yeah okay um yeah, I think that Goldeneye really pushed what FPS games could be, you know, later on. And we've discussed, I mean, this is, I think this is probably our longest episode yet. Yeah. And we've discussed quite a lot of what made it great, the, the cultural significance of this game, in particular the music, the gameplay, the graphics, and the legacy that Goldeneye holds. And to look at this completely non-biased with no nostalgia isn't something I think I can do because it's such a big game you know it holds a lot for me and I played this a lot when I was younger and I have a lot of early gaming memories playing Goldeneye with my friends so for me I think this game was always going to be yes it deserves to be on the list and if I try really hard to look at it without bias I'd still say yes just because of the amount that it gave the gaming industry to move forward like you said with valve and half-life 
and the the new kind of forward momentum that it game uh, gave FPS games because up until that point, you know, Quake, Doom, Castlevania, they're all very samey. Duke Nukem, and then Goldeneye came, and I think it really changed the changed the the playing did field. You, did you say Castlevania as a first? Not Castlevania. Game? What's what am I thinking? <laughs> Uh, Castle Wolfenstein, so, not Castlevania. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> I um, thought someone's going to pick us up if. They, if <laughs> yeah, definitely. I agree. Uh, <laughs> um, I I think of all the games that we've done so far, if anything deserves to be on this list for being the innovator that it was being the quality game that it was when it came out i think this absolutely deserves to be there this is where it gets a bit difficult for me though because i don't know if it would be on my own list it would depend how i was uh what my criteria for my own list would be um if it was games that have influenced the most and been heavy hitters in terms of innovating then absolutely yes but if it was a top 100 of games that i really wanted to play all the time i don't know if it would be like i said to you when we were playing i think i enjoy people watching people play this more i enjoy watching the film more um and it is fun to play and i will play it again definitely but i'm not in any rush to play it again and i don't think i'll play it again for another couple of years it's so it's it's, it's hard it is, and I think it's the equivalent, like I just said, that it really did a lot for FPS games moving forward. I kind of compare GoldenEye, what GoldenEye did for FPS games of that generation, to what Halo did for FPS and sci-fi games of that generation, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it, definitely. It, it holds its own legacy. So Yes. Yeah, I, I've got a lot of time for this game, and I understand where you're coming from as well, especially as a big Bond fan. It's... um. It's a difficult one to call, but yeah, I, I, I think this game deserves its place and I think it's rightfully in this list, no matter how yeah you know flawed we think this list is, because it definitely is. Yeah, I think it deserves to be on the list of the 100 best games, even if it's not on my personal list of games that I want to jump in and play right now, or games that I enjoy playing the most, or games that are the most fun to play. Yeah. So it is one of the best games, so it should be on that uh, with that criteria on the list and it should be very high on the list yes i agree so that wraps up goldeneye that was a big one that was a fun one um <laughs> i don't even know what to to say after all that yeah that's that's, that's a long episode <laughs> um, yeah yeah definitely but if, if you're still here you know the usual stuff um we touched on the next game earlier but i think i got confused so the next game <laughs> we, we, we've got two games just to confirm the next game is my choice and then is it the one after the next game is the one that we've decided to do together yeah it's like a joint got a joint you. choice okay so the next game um is my choice and we've gone for batman arkham city uh which was released on the ps3 xbox 360 did it come out on the nintendo on the on the wii it didn't did it it came out on the wii u okay um so yeah, I think there was a special version called Armored Edition or something. Oh yes, 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 yeah. I know it. It's it's a bit of a weird one, uh, but we're playing. I won't be playing that version. You what? Sorry, I won't be playing that version. No, I think it's very different from the actual 
um, original release. So yeah, Arkham City is our next game. It's the first superhero game on the list. I think, I think it's the only superhero game on the list, actually. Yeah, it might, might may well be the, the only superhero game on the list. So if you're a Batman fan, um, you can look forward to Get that on one. Board. Indeed. Um, that one should come out probably... A week let's or not two let's not put time scales just in case yeah th- 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 these are varying from coming out every week to because the times that week. we record are not necessarily the times that we release no. and we're trying to match certain dates and also trying not to drive ourselves <laughs> insane doing this yes arkham city will come out at some point <laughs> um yes but yeah any any final things to say not really just just the usual um just continue i think the big thing at the moment is, is for people to share it if they've enjoyed it um and then go back and watch older episodes because that would really help us out um just to kind of spread the word just be nice just to to have more people listen really. yeah absolutely um it, it's interesting seeing the analytics for the listeners via podcast and the listeners on dan's youtube channel the subtext as we've always said you know please feel free to give us um, ideas for games that you'd like to see us cover even if they're not in the top 100 list once we finished these games because there aren't going to be 100 episodes of this list because some games are on here multiple times and me and Dan also have games that we want to cover when this list is done so if you do yeah. want to get in touch with us, you know, either leave a comment on Dan's videos, which, as I said, YouTube channel, the subtext, as well as that, find us on Twitter at the long short of. You can follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, as we've said. Uh, there are other podcast platforms that we're on as well. I think that I'm not actually aware of. So. <laughs> you know there are uh there are ways to reach out or if you know us just drop us a message i suppose yeah we'll be making a push to improve our social media presence uh within the next same month or so anyway so hopefully um there'll be more ways that you can get in contact with us and uh feedback to us talk to us communicate with us yeah i mean whatever. ideally we'll be on facebook at some point we're not already on there because i don't have a facebook account and i know that you don't really use it much anyway do you no but Um, we will be doing that yeah we'll get on there eventually but yeah that is goldeneye anything else to say no um i enjoyed doing that one looking forward to the next one with a bit of trepidation but um Mm. both completed this before but we'll, we'll see what it's like to play again uh and see you on the next one thanks for the support thanks for having a listen and play some retro games yep we'll see you on the next one bye Bye.